now, to have a disproportionate sense that everything that matters is the here and now. And this happens in subtle ways and it happens in not so subtle ways. The not so subtle ways is just how materialism and wealth and a nice life and the fire and the chestnuts roasting and, and everything else that we might associate with a lovely Christmas, that's thrust upon us. This is the good life. These are the things that matter. These are the things that you want. These are the things that will give you happiness. I mean, it's not so subtle. Christmas starts to get advertised from just after September in, in the shops. Things that we should buy, things that we should have, these things will bring us happiness. These things will, will, in a sense, save us. But it also happens in subtle ways. There are ways that the world sort of imitates and provides a kind of cheap imitation of things that do matter. So I think a, a chief example of this is the whole idea of, of Christmas cheer or Christmas spirit, where we love each other and we're kind to each other and we do good things for each other. Now, please do not mishear me. Loving each other, being kind to each other, doing good things for each other are excellent things for us to do, and we must do those things. But the subtle lie is that what the world needs most is for us to love each other. Did you notice what's so subtle about that? Because it's basically saying what the world needs most this time of year is us. What we looked at in Revelation 12 last time, a couple of weeks ago, and as we followed up in thinking about salvation, we're reminded that actually Christmas is a time that reminds us that the world is much more than it appears to be. Life is much more than it appears to be. This world, this life, the here and now, it matters what we do here, but it's not all that there is. And what this world needs most is not us and anything we can give. What this world needs most is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we saw how when the Lord Jesus was born into this world, it, it was considered not simply a, a sort of acute moment or an awe moment or, or just a wonderful, a wonderful thing that happened in the world. It was an act of war from the kingdom of the Son into the kingdom of darkness. It was a decisive invasion into that kingdom of darkness, and it was treated as such by Satan himself, who was enraged at the birth of Christ. Enraged at the birth of Christ. Who We saw in that picture the two signs, the woman and the dragon, as she's giving birth to the Messiah, the dragon is there, ready to devour, to kill, to destroy the Messiah. So I want to ask the question, well, why? Why was Satan so enraged? And why does that matter to us? And to understand why the serpent at the end of our story in the book of Revelation was so enraged at the birth of the Messiah, we need to go back to the serpent at the beginning of our story in Genesis 3. And so that's where we're going to spend um, the significant portion of our time today, Genesis 3. If you have a Bible open, um, and please do, if you have a Bible with you, please do open it up and follow along with us in chapter 3. Here's the first point. This, what was the serpent's war? First question we're going to look at. What was the serpent's war? What was he trying 
to do? Another way to, to ask this question would be to say to this, if Satan ruled this world without any intervention from God, what would the world look like? If Satan just pulled back all of his, uh, if God just pulled back all of his grace, all of his presence, and pulled back out of the world, uh, you know, enough to keep it running, but pulls back all of the significant intervention into the world and just let Satan have his way, what would Satan be doing? What would the world look like? Now, many of us would conjure up images of kind of post-apocalyptic scenes, dystopian futures, where you have overturned cars, buildings on fire, people who are starving and dirty and injured and howling in pain and agony, people are miserable, crime running rampant. And it's true that evil is at the heart of these things. Sin and evil and Satan is at the heart of all those things. And we imagine that, you know, left to their own devices, that's what they would do. But you see, that assumes... That Satan's chief task, his chief war, is to make us miserable. And I think a lot of us assume that that's the case. But traditionally, that's not how it's been understood. That actually, it is just as conceivable to have a world that is well-run, well-ordered, prosperous, peaceful, happy, but where nobody acknowledges God or gives thanks to him or worships him. Both of those scenarios are demonic scenarios. Because Satan's main objection is not our misery, but our corruption. Our corruption is image bearers. Now why? Why say that? Because here we have this well-known story in Genesis 3. And the question is, Satan's obviously been around for some time before this. The Bible never actually tells us in any great detail exactly how it is that Satan fell and became corrupted and came to this point in the garden. But the biblical story begins for us here and begins to talk to us about Satan in the garden. And what we've seen so far in this Genesis account is that God has created this beautiful world in six days and is the crown of all creation is to put Adam and Eve, men and women, there as the image of God, the, the kind of representation of God and his rule and his care over creation. And it's at that moment that Satan appears on the scene to begin to work. Why? Now, traditionally, the church has understood this to be that what Satan was chiefly enraged by was the fact that while once he was this morning star, this angel of great angelic beauty, who was closest to, to God of all, of all creation, now there is another creation that is made to represent God, another creature, Adam and Eve, who is made to represent God in a way that Satan never could, the way that Lucifer never could. And it's this act that caused Lucifer to fall, is the tradition, traditional understanding. And I think it makes sense because of the timing. Because in the context, man and woman are made the image of God, then Satan appears on the scene to corrupt that image. Because it makes sense of what was going on in those sort of the few obscure passages about Satan that we do have. And it also makes sense in the light of this is what the church has traditionally understood. 
And so I think putting all this together means that we can safely assume that Satan's chief objection was not misery per se. It's not like he's just a grumpy individual who just wants to create more grumpy individuals. I think we can, we can sometimes think of it that way. But his, his agenda is much more sinister. God created us to be image bearers of his goodness, of his rule over creation. And Satan's intent is to corrupt those image bearers, to create corrupted images. And he does this with a threefold strategy, the same strategy that you see him use throughout the scriptures. And the strategy is very simply to doubt God's goodness, to doubt the truthfulness of God's word, and to doubt the authority of God. Another way you could say it is to doubt the goodness, the truthfulness, and authority of God's word. That has been his strategy all the way through. The goodness, because he says to to Eve, did God command you not to eat of this? And Eve already begins to say, well, he did say that we couldn't eat of it or even touch it. Which is just a subtle indication that Eve is beginning to buy into, you're right, this is a very unreasonable request. Why can't we eat from this tree? We can't even touch it, which God never said. But it just shows the subtle leaning towards, uh, why is God even giving us this kind of command in the first place? It makes no sense. She begins to doubt the goodness of his word, the goodness of God. Then the serpent says to him, but surely you won't die, or you will not surely die, which is a way of saying, ah, we can't really be sure what will happen if you disobey God. I was watching a, a television show on Friday night where the, uh, the main sort of hero of the story uh, needed to make a tough decision to take some of their companions with them on this adventure, knowing that all but one were going to die. And when um, <clears throat> she was asked, point blank, what will happen to the rest of them? And in this, in this show, which is called The Wheel of Time, she, she can't lie. It's impossible for her to lie. And so how does she get around not being able to lie, but also not wanting to tell them that they're all going to die? She says, uh, we can't really be certain what's going to happen. Interestingly, I think Satan is doing something very, very similar here. You, you're not surely going to die. I mean, there's a chance, but it's, I mean, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. To doubt the goodness of God's word, the truthfulness of God's word, but also the authority of God to rule. The thing that eventually, finally, clinches the deal for Eve is that it's the offer to become like God, to, to know good and evil, which means to make judgments about good and evil. It's not so much intellectual knowledge the way we think of it. It's more about the right to rule, the right to decide what is right and wrong. She wants to be like God and decide for herself what is right and wrong. So through this strategy, Satan seeks to corrupt the image bearers, Adam and Eve. Because if they doubt God's goodness and they doubt God's truthfulness, and they doubt God's authority, the truthfulness of his word, the goodness of his word, the authority of his word, they can no longer function as God's representatives because they are no longer functioning as images of God, 
but now they are functioning as images of Satan. Or at the very best, images of themselves. Now you see, Adam's task in all of this, who's conspicuous by his absence to this point, Adam, Adam's task is that he should have been there to defend Eve and all of creation from the serpent. That was his job, to tend and keep the garden. He had one job, which is to protect the garden. This is the thing that he doesn't do. And when we learn that Eve eats of the fruit and then she hands it to Adam, who's right there with her, we realize that he is there, he's present, he's just not doing anything about it. And so through this, the serpent's war is to corrupt the image of God, and this is precisely what he does. So if the serpent's war is to corrupt God's image bearers, then that shows that our need is of a savior who will restore us as image bearers. What we don't need is for us to try harder to be image bearers. That's the Pelagian heresy. That if we just have someone to tell us what to do and we try really hard at doing it, that'll be okay. But the scriptures are very clear throughout the whole Old Testament. If you go away and read it, see what happens to people who try really hard. Nobody gets it right. You have sort of blurred success at best. Some good, but always tainted with evil. So if the first point is the serpent's war is our corruption, the second point is this, that we need a savior, someone who is like us, but not corrupted like us, to restore our image-bearer position. Um, I remember Liz and I thought it would be a really cool idea to get one of those old telephones. You know the ones with the dial, where you have to dial it back? Because they look so cool. And I used to have one when I was a kid, and so I was feeling all nostalgic, and so I'd get one. And it, was, it worked well for a while, although I don't know if you've ever tried to phone a mobile number on one of those dial back things. It takes about 20 minutes just to phone. You know, you're, you're pulling the thing back and you watch it go so... And there's like 400 numbers in a mobile number. It seems that's what it feels like anyway. And then also when you're trying to phone on it and you, um, you get to that point where it says just press 1. And you look at your little dial thing and you realize this is, this is not possible. So while it looked good and kind of operated a little bit like a phone, at the same time, it just wasn't really able to work as a phone. It wasn't what we needed. To be fair, it's not only the old phones that do this. I have perfectly good mobiles, um, you know, fancy smartphone things that can do everything extremely well except for make calls, um, which is also a little bit useless. But you see, this is what we're like if we try and just simply do better at being image bearers of God. We kind of look a bit like the real thing. And this is what you see in this whole Christmas spirit, Christmas cheer idea. Oh, let's just be kind and jolly and good and share. And there's some wonderful things that go on as a result of that. But at the end of the day, they're just a little bit like those retro phones that just can't get the job done. It starts to look good for a while, but it all falls apart in the end. There's a veneer that when you peel it back, everything is still rotten on the inside. What we need 
is a new Adam. As I've mentioned, Adam's task failed. Look at 3 verse 17. Because of Adam's failure, notice the, the heavy judgment doesn't fall on Eve, it falls on Adam, because his chiefly was the responsibility to protect the garden. Adam and Eve are both image bearers, but Adam was meant to be the covenant head of this, this relationship with creation, and he utterly fails. And so in verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the result is hard work, cursing, and death and you see this again in verse 22 the lord god said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever so the lord banished him from the garden of eden to work the ground from which he had been taken adam is banished banished from god's presence banished from life banished from blessing cursed so what we need is not simply a reversal of the curse, we need that, but in order to reverse the curse, we need a new Adam. We need an Adam who does what the first Adam fails to do. And this is why you see it so clearly, I mean, if you want a, a, an at-length description of our need of this and how it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see that in Romans 5. But Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, is, uh, uh, sorry, verse, um, verse 22 provides a more succinct description, but we'll get there in a moment. So we'll see that our, our need is of a new Adam. If the serpent's task was to corrupt the image bearers of God, which he, which he does, then the only way to fix that is if we have a new Adam who did what the first Adam failed to do. The other thing that the passage hints at is what we need is a new, is a serpent crusher. In a sense, this is tied up with the new Adam idea, someone who will defeat the serpent, where the first Adam just let the serpent in. We need an Adam who will defeat the serpent. So we need an Adam who will crush the serpent's head. So if you look at this in verse 14, so the Lord God said to the snake, because you've done this, curse to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust in all the, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's just this glimmer of hope of the promise of someone, a male child who will be born who will crush the serpent's head. The thing that Adam should have done, the moment the snake came slithering in to the garden to deceive Eve, the moment he saw what was going on, he should have crushed the serpent's head. He didn't. But the promise is of one who will. Finally, the passage hints at one other thing that we need. When we talk about needing a savior, what do we mean? A new Adam, a serpent crusher, but also, finally, we need a sacrifice. A sacrifice of atonement. You see this just briefly in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife 
and clothed them. It's just a subtle hint. But it gets built upon all the way through Genesis and Exodus, and Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through to Revelation. This idea of needing a sacrifice to be clothed in the garments of somebody else becomes such an important idea. And again, this is going to lead us to what we need. We needed someone's blood to be shed on our behalf. We needed someone's righteousness to clothe us, to provide for us a righteousness that we could never get for our own. We needed sacrifice. We needed clothing. They're just hints in the beginning of the Bible, just hints. They get unpacked all the way through. So this is our need. If we're going to be restored as image bearers of God, this is what we need. Now, Here's why this is very important. Remember our question at the beginning is, why is it Satan was so enraged by the birth of a baby, by a child? And the answer is because that child, that child fulfills the requirements that we need for a savior, for an image bearer. So remember we said we need a new Adam. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. Actually, we'll read from verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see that? The clear parallel? Christ is the new Adam who was doing what the old Adam couldn't do, but he couldn't do this. God the Son could not do this unless he took on flesh, unless he became one of us, part of humanity, so that he could take on humanity and be humanity's new covenant representative as Adam was always meant to be. Here is Christ, our new covenant Lord, Our new Adam, fulfilling exactly what we need to restore broken image bearers back to the glory that they once had in creation and beyond. The second thing that we saw that we needed was a serpent crusher. Again, if we cast our minds back to um, Revelation 12, this is exactly what we see. You have this great war with the serpent and this child. And we see that the war is won. It was won in all three counts by Christ. It was the war between the dragon and Christ himself, and Christ wins that war. It was the war between dragon and Christ's angels, and Christ wins that war. It was the war between the dragon and Christ's people, and Christ wins that war. Can you see? He is the serpent crusher. We see not only that, but also we've seen that what we need is a a sacrifice. If you turn to 1 John chapter 2, you see, again, who is Jesus? What was he born to do? I love the way John puts it in his letter, 1 John. Because it's just so pastoral. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice 
for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, all, all, all of this is connected together. Our new Adam must defeat Satan, but our new Adam must also fulfill the righteous laws that we never could, fulfill righteousness that we never could, so that we could be clothed in that righteousness. And he must also take upon himself the judgment that we deserved so that God's justice is satisfied. And so this Adam could only destroy Satan and clothe us in righteousness, be a sacrifice of atonement for us, if he in fact did perfectly what the first Adam and what every human being ever since could never do, which is to be the perfect image of God the Father. But you see, our greatest need is this new Adam, the serpent crusher, this sacrifice of atonement. You see how perfectly this need is now met in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yesterday we had a, a brief moment where we couldn't quite get something. You know, we always are at a loss when the tech team aren't around. And so um, we had this brief moment where we couldn't get the, the tech to work. And so I ran up there and tried to figure out what was going on. And so I'm switching on lights and opening cupboards and looking around. It's that moment when the car breaks down and you lift the hood pretending you know what's going on. Um, I have no idea. I look at an engine, I see an engine. It, it might, as well be a, a, you know, might as well be a coffee cup. I have no idea what's going on in there. And I look up at the, all the technical stuff and I'm trying to desperately figure out what's going on. Then it catches my eye. A one button... That could fix everything and get everything working. Just one button on one of the things of kit that we got up there that I noticed was off. And I thought, maybe, just maybe, if I turn this thing on, it will get everything going. And lo and behold, I push the button and it works. Now, that doesn't happen very often. You've got to celebrate the small victories. But you see, this is, this is one of those things when you see how much, what exactly we needed from a Savior, what exactly we need from salvation, and then you look at Jesus and you see he is exactly that. He fulfills exact, that exact need. He is that one button that if you press it, it fulfills everything. And so we just need to not buy into the view that, first of all, this life is what matters most and our wealth and our happiness in this life is what matters most. That's the first lie. The second lie that we can buy in and it's connected it's a kind of worldliness, is to believe that what the world needs most is us. For us just to try a little harder, do a little better, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and just be a bit more Christ-like. That's such an important thing to do, as long as you don't skip the essential step, which is to say what the world needs most is not us, but Christ. But now in Christ, our image begins to be restored. And now in Christ, we can begin to live and look and try and strive to be more Christ-like, more like the image of God that we should have been. But it's only possible if first we have someone to crush the serpent's head, if first we have someone to clothe us in righteousness, if first we have someone to take away our sin and guilt and be our new Adam. What we need most, now more than anything else, is not anything this world can give you. 
It's not anything that any other person can give you. What you need now more than anything else is Christ. What the world needs now more than anything else is Christ. He alone fulfills what we need as a Savior. He is our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have so loved us and so desired to to rescue us that you came in the form of a man, sending your Son as the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, to be our perfect Savior. And we pray that you would help us to remember over the coming weeks, months, years, and for the rest of our lives that what we need, what this world needs more than anything else, is not us, but the Lord Jesus Christ. May we pray and live and love as if that were true. Because it is. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.